as was mentioned, we wrapped up or have hosted, this was our third annual, it's called Becoming One. It's a marriage enrichment and family kind of retreat. And this year we focused on the idea of parenting. And we had couples that have uh, successfully navigated the years of raising their children to be successful Christians who are now serving and, and building their homes and families after the model that God has set forth. And uh, we had a, a couple that talked about raising daughters, uh, Brother Ty and Sister Lisa, uh, who had a house full of girls. We had Brother David and Sister Rhonda Pingerton who had a house full of boys and talked about the challenges of raising boys. And, and there's differences in that. And, and we would be foolish not to acknowledge those differences. Uh, Brother Michael and Sister Hannah talked about raising daughters today because uh, they have two beautiful daughters and now have a son. Um, so they'll get to enjoy and, and learn about what it means to raise boys. It's, it's fun, uh, let me tell you. Um, and Elizabeth and I, we are raising three sons, and, and we have a baby girl. Um, so we're learning now about that raising the daughter and how different that is from raising a boy. And we have to do things different or she's going to be rough. And uh, she's going to be a handful for whoever ends up marrying her. So uh, we have to work with her to, to understand the importance of the role that she's going to have as a woman in the kingdom of God. All of that to be said, Elizabeth and I pray for our kids. And I would venture to say that every one of you that are parents here today, pray for your children. And, and if you don't, start. And if you haven't, you need to start that now. But as we pray for our children, you know, we, we have times where those prayers seem very generic. And, and we're thankful to God that He's blessed us with those children. And, and we want to be good stewards and, and train them and, and teach them so that they go forward into this world and, and they have an impact. But, you know, sometimes those prayers are very hard because we as parents make mistakes. And, and it's, it, it stings a lot to see the flaws of my children that I know I was the source of. Because I see my shortcomings, I see my weaknesses played out in their lives, and, and I don't want them to have the same struggles. And, and that's one of the things, Elizabeth, and I pray to God is... That we would model, you know, we're not perfect people, but we would model how to respond to sin, to respond to temptation, to respond to everything that this world is, is hurling at our children at such a rapid pace and, and be equipped uh, so that they can be successful. Not perfect because perfection is, is impossible for us as clothed in humanity, but to strive for the example of Jesus Christ who is perfect. And as we find ourselves lacking, we lean more heavily upon Him and His graciousness and His forgiveness and understand the importance of responding to sin in an appropriate manner. That's a prayer that we have for our sons and our daughter. The psalmist says in Psalm 144 and verse 12, and this is interesting, this is a psalm or a prayer of wartime um, that actually is not a prayer or a, a psalm... Um, uh, you know, that David is pouring his heart out as a broken man of God. He's actually praying about wartime. And if you read verse 1 of Psalm 144, um, he says, Blessed be the Lord, uh, my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. Um, there were physical battles that David had to lead God's people into. But in verse 12 of that prayer of David, he says, We pray that our sons would be as plants grown up in their youth and that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. And, and I think about those words that we're looking for our children to achieve something. 
We're looking for our children to be successful. And how many of us as parents want our children to be successful? We all want that. But if they're successful in the world's eyes and they're not successful in a relationship with God, as parents, we have failed in doing the most important thing that God has called us to do. God has called us to lead them back to Him. And as David prays this prayer, I think that's the idea that our children are plants and they're grown up. They're reaching forward towards something. And who is it that allows the plants to grow? That's God. Who's the giver of every good and perfect gift? It's an acknowledgement that these children come from the hand of God. And we're raising them. And he wants his daughters to be what? As pillars. Foundational elements that are sculptured and beautiful in a palace style. And you think about that as we consider our sons and our daughters today. Now I want to talk about daughters first. Because I have the least experience in that area. So I want to end with what I know more about. (laughs) Get this part out of the way. When we think about our daughters, I want my daughter to be a woman that's praised by God. And ultimately praised one day, Lord willing, if that's her lot, by a husband who trusts in her. I want to tell you, our women are such a valuable component to the ministry of the church. And in a lot of ways, we have failed to acknowledge that. You know why? Because of one or two passages in the New Testament. There are a couple of passages that limit the role of women within a public assembly of the church. I believe in that doctrine. I believe God has ordained male leadership in the home. I believe God has ordained male leadership in the church. And when you think about the qualifications given to Titus and and Timothy and and those writings from Paul, let the man that desires to be a deacon or or an elder, let him be the husband of one wife. That, That eliminates a woman from leading in those leadership roles and being a shepherd over God's people. First Corinthians chapter 14, it says, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it's not permitted unto them to speak. But they're commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. That's one passage. Again, given in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Parallels that teaching of 1 Corinthians 14 about the role within the public assembly of the church. And we take that one aspect, and all of a sudden, we act like women can't be involved in ministry. Shame on us. That's half our workforce. That's half the laborers who are seeing the fields widen to harvest who can go out and be the word of the Lord to this world. And I want my daughter to grow up empowered in her role in God's kingdom. I want her to accept the role of submission with her husband and to other men who lead the church. But I want her empowered in her responsibility to be a teacher of the word of God. But we have focused so much on this one idea that we have sold short the value of our women, our daughters, our wives in the work and the ministry of the church. And I want to illustrate that. First Corinthians chapter 14, we've already quoted it this morning, verse 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Is this true? Yes. Is it doctrine? Yes. Is it important for the church not to compromise this doctrine? Absolutely. But this one passage does not dictate every role that a woman can play within a local congregation. Continuing on 
In verse 36, Paul writes, What came the word of God out from you or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Now the problem is some people have taken that passage and said, Well, that was a commandment of the Lord for Corinth, but it really doesn't apply to modern day. If you do that with that passage, you do that with every other passage in the Bible. And therefore, nothing is applicable to us today in the year 2024. And that's foolish. That's not a proper way to discern the word of God. So this is true. And yes, it's pivotal teaching to the organization and the work of the church in a public manner. But our time in worship each week, which is what these verses are talking about, is very small. If my math is correct, we have 168 hours every week. How much of that time is spent in an assembly of the church in our worship services? Four hours. Well, we may get past that today. I don't know. I'm joking. Four hours a week. In Harlingen, at our home congregation, we meet on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday nights, as scriptural churches do. Okay? And, and we total the time in those assemblies... An hour and a half on Sunday morning, and then we kind of shoot for an hour, hour and 15 minutes on those other two. So maybe four, four or five, five hours at the most a week we're in these assembly settings. And we say, well, women have to be silent there. You know what that means? There's a whole lot of other hours women don't have to be silent. And in fact, not only can they speak, I believe God commands them to speak. I believe God commands them to be teachers. I believe they are commanded to instruct and train Not just other women, though that's a responsibility. Not just their children. I believe they need to train me. They need to teach me. Guys, my wife teaches me every day. (laughs) Not just physical things around the house of what to do and what not to do to keep her happy. She teaches me spiritual things. And as I watch her live her life, she's teaching by her example. So when these verses of restriction placed upon women in the assembly setting are are applied incorrectly though this is what happens we either number one place women in a position to violate what is commanded in the assemblies of the church which is dangerous and we don't want to do that or we place a restriction on women where god places no such restriction ladies young ladies god wants you to be workers in his kingdom God wants you to study to show yourself approved unto God. A worker that's not ashamed, who rightly applies the word of God. Who can be a teacher of good things to other people. And I want to teach my daughter that. I want her to seek opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with her friends and people that she can influence. And just because she can't do it in one setting a few hours a week doesn't take away the responsibility she has for the rest of her life. And this role for women has never changed. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted them to speak, but they are commanded to be under their obedience. It also saith the law. That law is not a reference back to old Mosaical law. You won't find that law in the law of Moses. You know where you find it? You find it in the garden. You know what that means? This law has never changed. And God's role, so when we look through the Old Testament and we see, guess what? Women teaching, women praying, women leading outside of organized assemblies of God's people, they were right to do so. And there's no forbiddance of that today.
But instead of focusing on what my daughter can't do, I'm going to focus on what I want her to do and what I want her to be. And if you ask me, what do you want for your daughter, Chase? This is what I want. I want her to be a virtuous woman. I want her to be that Proverbs 31 woman. And you look at this example. Her children arise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her. Dads with daughters, isn't this what you want? Moms of daughters, isn't this what you want your daughters to shoot for and aim for and be in their life? Then guess what, moms? You have a responsibility to model that. And husbands of those wives, guess what? You have a responsibility to empower your wife to be this type of woman and encourage her in her relationship with God so that she can be that example for your daughters. You know, wisdom throughout the Bible is discerned as a woman. You ever thought about that? Throughout Proverbs, chapter 1 and verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. You think God knew what he was saying? As he used women as a personification of wisdom? I see it with my wife. My wife's a lot wiser than I am. (laughs) My judgment isn't always right. You know why? Because as men, you know what we want to do? We see a problem, what do we want to do? We want to attack the problem and go solve the problem. You know what? That's gotten me in trouble sometimes. (laughs) Even though I was right, she sometimes says, hey, slow down, think about this. No, I don't want to think, I just want to do. But she puts that wisdom in my mind and says, hey, but have you considered? Well, no, but I still want to do. Well, shouldn't we consider? Yes, we should consider And her wisdom causes me to pause. And she shares what it is that's on her heart and in her mind from her study and her discernment of the Word of God. And it saved me numerous times in relationships and church issues and in everything because we're one. And it's important for us to acknowledge that God uses that idea of wisdom being personified as a woman. And within this, we see a role in the church and those who have been called out. First Corinthians chapter 12 talks a lot about this idea of many members and, you know, there's one body. Is every member of that body important? I said this not too long ago and I got a little bit of, I don't want to say pushback, but questioning eyes when I said my seven-year-old daughter has a place in the kingdom of God. Because we think about who has a place in the kingdom of God and we talk about, well, when someone's obedient to the gospel and they're buried with their Lord in baptism, they arise to walk in the newness of life, they're given the Holy Spirit, and the Lord adds them to His church. Is that correct? Yes. Boy, I tell you, Zach and Bailey have a little baby girl. That baby girl Sunday has a place in the kingdom of God today. And we can learn from her. You know what we learn? We can learn trust. We can learn love. We can learn desperation. Can't we, Zach? As we see her face on the FaceTime and she's crying out for mommy and daddy and mommy and daddy aren't there. 
this weekend. Y'all did very well, by the way. I was proud of y'all. Y'all survived, and so did she. Um, but I'll tell you, every person has a place in the kingdom of God. Yes, now, as we grow older, whether we're raised in the church or not raised in the church, there comes a point where we have to have our eyes open to know good and evil and, and, and right and wrong and, and what sin is. And, and when we feel the prick and the sting of that sin, we need to respond so the Lord can add us to his church. But that doesn't mean that prior to that, we weren't a part of his kingdom as little children. When Jesus needed to make a point to his disciples of what the kingdom of heaven was like, remember who he called to him. He said he called a little child unto him and told his disciples what? Unless you become like this little child, you will in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. So I think there's a lot of lessons in there that we can teach. Everyone has a place, and especially our young ladies and our women, our mothers, and our wives. And remember that God has set them in the body as it has pleased him. Within Christ, we think about the idea of male and female. And we know that in the beginning, God created male and female, and there is an order to the creation of God and a purpose for that. But you know, in Christ, there is unification and oneness. And in Galatians chapter 3, as Paul is making the point of there's not Jew nor Greek, he illustrates that with this idea that we all have an equal standing with God as our Father. We're all His children. And he's not saying there's not male or female. He's just saying those things aren't a differentiator between you and God. He says, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And our sisters in Christ, our wives, our mothers, guess what? They're joint heirs with us. And when God looks at them, he sees a child of his. On equal standing, on equal footing, same access to salvation and the kingdom of God. Now within that kingdom, we've already talked about, there are roles and God designed those things for us. 1 Peter 3 and verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live your wives in, uh, with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Elizabeth and I have been married now this year over 20 years. Yeah, it's hard for me to believe that. 20 years that we've shared a life together. You know, before we were married, you know what she was to me? She was my best friend. We had built a relationship of trust where we talked about so many things in life. Then we're married and we're husband and wife and now we're parents and we've labored together in the kingdom. But all of those relationships within the confines of an eternity with God aren't the most important relationship. You know what is? She's my sister in Christ. And I have a responsibility toward my sister in Christ to encourage her into a deeper, more meaningful relationship with our God. Husbands, that's your responsibility with your wife. To see past just the physical nature of your relationship and understand she's a daughter of God. 
And when we take that relationship seriously, it'll enhance the relationship we can have with one another and what we're going to teach our daughters to become in his kingdom. You see, women were vital in the New Testament church. Uh, Paul wrote in Romans 16 6, Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Uh, Romans 16 and 12, Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Um, Acts chapter 18 and 18, Paul, after he tarried there a, a good while and then took his leave of the brethren, sailed thence to Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sincrea, uh, for he had a vow. Paul recognized these women by name and said, what? They labored with me in the gospel. They're valuable to the kingdom and the work of the church. And I pray that for my daughter. I pray that my daughter is an impactful teacher. I pray that my daughter is a diligent worker. I pray that my daughter is a generous supporter of the Lord's kingdom and his work. I pray that my daughter is a sharer herself of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that she's a change agent for leadership. You know why I say the last one? Because no matter how great a man is and the leadership capability he has, a wife can destroy that. And I don't want my wife to hold her husband back. I want her to be the enhancement that makes him the leader that he is in his home. And one day, Lord willing, in the Lord's church. And let's inspire our daughters to attain and shoot for those goals in their life. And no matter what this culture in our day tries to tell our daughters, let's teach them the value what God values. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some of you do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. This world will not tell you that's valuable. This world says all the gold, all the makeup, all the dresses, all the looking cute, that's what makes you valuable. God says the exact opposite. Who do you want to please? And if you want to please God, that doesn't mean you don't take care of your appearance or don't take care of your body, but that's not the thing that defines you with God. What defines you is a meek, gentle, and quiet spirit. Because God says that is precious. And God says that. It is what truly is valuable. I want my daughter to look well to the ways of her household. I want her children to rise up and call her blessed. I want her husband to praise her. And I want the Lord to recognize and praise that life. And as a father, that's where I have to focus with my daughter. And there's no greater work that we can do as dads to teach our daughters how to serve God than in the way that we love their mother. And my daughter's only seven years old, but I know the way I treat Elizabeth is the way she's going to expect her husband to treat her one day. And sometimes that's scary, but it really is just a responsibility that I have to take seriously. In my conduct and my behavior toward my wife and her mother. Now, what about boys? Got a little more experience in this area. 
You know our boys. We've got Josiah 17, Ezra 16, Malachi's 11. The only one with us is Malachi, but the other, other, because the other two now have a life, apparently, of their own. Um, hopefully, I know they're at church this morning at North 7th Street, and, but they had ball games and other commitments that they had for the weekend. But um, it has been a joy <laughs> to train boys. And I will tell you, when we found out our first child, Josiah, was going to be a boy, sigh of relief. (laughs) I get boys. I understand boys. I am one. Well, I'm a man now, but back then, (laughs) I was a boy. Um, But I understand the mind of a boy. I understand the challenges that a boy faces. Then we had Ezra. Sounds good. Then we had Malachi. Sounds good. And then we found out we were expecting our fourth. And Elizabeth and I never prayed for a boy or a girl. We said we just wanted to be healthy. But when we found out it was a girl, I want to tell you, fear came over me. Because a lot of the things we already talked about this morning would be challenges for me as a dad to understand and how to relate that to my daughter. But boys, I get You know why? Boys are dumb. (laughs) Boys are simple. Boys are easy. Not not easy in the sense that it's easy to raise them, but it's easy to understand their mind because it's really three things they're probably thinking about. Our minds are just focused on one thing at a time. We don't have the complexity. My wife has admitted that. I can make one comment and it can lead to an entire discussion about something that we didn't even talk about that that object connected to, but somehow in her mind it did. And hours later, (laughs) I don't even know what we're talking about. (laughs) Because with guys, guess what? I can actually say, what's going on? Nothing. Now, that's not true. There's got, no, honestly, there is a nothing box that my mind can go to. (laughs) And I'm happy to dwell there. But my wife's mind, it's never nothing. So it's hard for her to understand that. But there's a design to this idea of leading boys to be servants of God. And it starts with teaching and training. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul wrote to Timothy. He wasn't Timothy's dad. Timothy's dad was a Gentile. He had been raised by his grandmother and his mother. And Paul had discovered Timothy on one of his journeys. And he was a young man that showed promise. And Paul kind of took him under his wing to mentor him. And in this manner became a father in faith to Timothy. And there were some things Paul instructed Timothy that we as physical fathers ought to be implementing with our sons. Timothy said, or Paul wrote to Timothy, said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Notice just in these five verses, Paul gives him a lot of instruction on what it means to be a man of God. And we can say, well, he was training him to be an evangelist. He was training him to be a worker in the kingdom. But he was training him to be a man of God. 
And in this, we look at that, he says, be strong in what? In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We need to train our boys to be strong, but also to recognize no matter how strong you are physically, emotionally, spiritually at times, you're nothing without the grace of God. And your strength needs to be built upon the knowledge of the relationship you have in Him because that's true strength and reliance that will be eternal. He says, the things that you've heard of me, you need to commit those to who? Faithful men, who then will go teach faithful men, who will go teach faithful men, and we see the expansion of the kingdom of God. He says, you at some point have to yourself be a leader. Dads, we have to train our boys to be leaders. We can't have them be passive. We can't have them afraid of failure. We can't have them afraid of taking a risk and stepping out in faith and being a servant of God. They have to be bold in their ability to lead. And then he says endure hardships as a good soldier. You know what that means? That means there's going to be pain you're going to have to go through. And as a man, guess what? You better be prepared prepared for pain. Not only prepared for it, but sometimes you have to run toward the pain, as we're going to talk about. So be strong in God's grace. Learn to be a a leader of others and endure hardship. Joshua 1 and verse 9. I think about Joshua. (laughs) Brother Tim quoted him this morning in our opening prayer. That we would have the courage, like Joshua years ago, to say what? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Was that bold? You know what Joshua was saying? Hey, all you other people who claim to be a people of God, who are a people of God that he has separated out, I don't care what you do. I want you to serve God, but at the end of the day, I can only control what goes on within the four walls of my home. And I'm going to have the courage to be a leader that says, as for me and my house, we'll serve God. If we're the only ones, then that's what we're going to do. And he was a leader of God's people. Now the people responded to that and followed. But somebody had to be bold enough to take that first step. And Joshua was that man. You know why? Not because Joshua was awesome and amazing. Because the Lord reassured him. Joshua knew where his strength came from. Remember what the Lord said? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you are go and because he's with me wherever I go when it's hard I'm going to stay true to God when I have doubts in my heart I'm going to go back to my foundation and say what's truth and whatever that truth is as hard as it might be for me to do it I'm going to stand and say Lord you've given me the strength to do this and we need men of God to stand up and lead their homes in this way You know, in parenting, we have to understand seasons. Have you all ever heard that? Well, it's just not my season right now. Or we're in this season or that season. I didn't understand. Elizabeth really explained it to me. Because really, seasons to me, there's really only four. And I introduced them to Elizabeth when we got married. You know what they are? Baseball season, football season, hockey season, basketball season. And she says, there's always a game, there's always a season. I'm like, yeah, pretty much. And that's been kind of our life. And, but in parenting, there are seasons, aren't there? 
You know, Elizabeth and I are in a season with our older two boys that, man, a lot of their training has been done. They're 16 and 17 years old. We're, we're fine-tuning at this point. I mean, it, you can't go undo 17 years of parenting in one year. A lot of that's done, and we're getting ready to launch. That's a different season than when they're one and two. And you're just trying to keep them alive. <laughs> right? And in parenting, there's seasons. And recognizing those things, there are some things we need to make sure we teach early on to our children. One of them is self-awareness. The Proverbs 4 and 25 says, Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Let all your ways be established. We need to teach our kids to be mindful of way, the way they walk, the way they live, the decisions they make, how they think. Because somebody else is trying to tell them how to think and how to live and how to walk. And if your parent's saying, well, we want them to have this self-discovery, they're not going to have self-discovery. They're going to discover the ways of the world is what they're going to discover. And they're going to walk away from God. You teach, you train, you teach them to be aware of who they are. And that identity, the most important thing about that identity is that they're a child created by God with the purpose of glorifying Him. And if you can instill that in them, especially with boys, as they get a little older, you start to teach this concept of pleasure and pain. Hebrews eleven twenty four talks about Moses and this idea of pleasure and pain. And it says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. You know what would have been easy for Moses? To stay in the house of Pharaoh. He was a prince. Yeah, we know he had that issue where he went out and he had murdered an Egyptian, but he was still of the house of Pharaoh. He was still a prince in that land. But he had fled to Midian and then God spoke to him by the burning bush and told him what? Go back and lead my people out of their slavery. You are the emancipator. You're leading them back to me. You're the one that I've chosen. And when he went back, he went back a changed man. He still could have gone back and said, I'm Moses. I was a prince in Egypt. But he left that identity. Why? Because God had called him to something else. And he decided he was going to run from the pleasure and run toward the pain. You think that was hard? Men, every day you have to make a decision to run toward pain and away from pleasure. If you're going to be a man of God. You know what pleasure is? I don't know what time Elizabeth and I will get home tonight. But I know what time my alarm is going to go off in the morning. It's going to go off at 5.30 a.m. You know what pleasure would be? <laughs> Y'all know pleasure would be turning that alarm off. And saying, I, don't, I just want to lay here. I just want to get rest. I just want to. But you know what a man is going to do? A man's going to get up and say, I'm tired. I'm sore because I played basketball two nights ago till midnight and I'm 43. But you know what? 
I'm going to go do the job that I need to do so I can take care of my family. It's pain. And we have to teach ourselves to have the discipline to run toward pain and away from some pleasure. Because our brains are hardwired to seek pleasure. (laughs) Once we have something that brings us pleasure, you know what our brain says? Do that more. (laughs) Do more of that. And if something hurts, guess what the brain says? Hey, don't do that. You see, but a spiritual man is not led by his physical body. He's led by what? The Spirit of God. And I believe all of us have been designed to be addicted. It's just a matter of what you're going to be addicted to. I've counseled with people and say, well, you don't understand. I have an addictive personality. Yeah, I do. (laughs) I understand. You know why? Because all of us do. And if we focus our time and attention and energy toward things that are fruitless and frivolous and really don't have any spiritual impact on our life, and then ultimately sometimes we allow destructive behaviors to become that addiction, we find ourselves separated from God. But if we addict ourselves to God and worship and glorifying Him, what happens? We fulfill the plan of God. And that's not a flaw in the design of God. That's the goodness of the design of God. We just have to have the responsibility to control the man outside with the man that's inside. Because everything God made was good. Really, what we're talking about is self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And something we have to realize is the beginning of pleasure becomes the end of (laughs) self-control. Isn't that true? You take someone who has had a struggle with a destructive addiction, let's say alcohol. You know how that started? It didn't start by them just going and getting drunk the first time they ever took a drink. Most of the time it starts very small where they just start experimenting. And they take a drink of some substance and they say, you know what, that's pretty good. And they take a little bit more and then they like the way that it makes them feel. And our brain is wired to say, well, if that felt good, more will feel better. (laughs) And then pretty soon, what's driving us? Not the spirit, not ourself, but some substance. Because why? Because it was pleasurable. And all of a sudden, we have flipped that switch to where our pleasure is actually destroying us. Which is why we have to practice the fruit of the spirit of self-discipline. You know, what we're talking about is temptation. Young men over here, there are two types of men that will deny that they've ever been tempted. You know what kinds of men those are? Dead men and liars. Because here's the reality. Temptation's real. And temptation's all around us. And our generation raising boys today, that temptation... Man, it's in the palm of their hand. It's on every screen that they sit down in front of. Because this world is trying to figure out a way to get into their heart and their mind and turn them against God. But you know what I know? I know Brother Sean fights temptation. I know Brother Brent gets tempted. Tempted with things that are ungodly. I know Jeff has temptations. You know why I know that? Because he's a man. (laughs) And all men have something. 
Every one of us. And here's the problem with the church. We haven't been honest about that. We've acted like, no, we don't struggle with that. You know what? I was very honest with my boys when they were very young. You know what? The things you struggle with, son, I've struggled with. And now that they're older, I say, you know, some of the things you're struggling with, guess what? I still struggle with. And I'm battling that temptation. We have to be wise to that because it's difficult for us to overcome. And if we're not careful what that thing is and what that thing will do, it will overcome us. And it will take control of our life and it will spiral very quickly. And pretty soon, we're not even trying to serve God with our mind because we're driven by pleasure and whatever that thing is. Maybe it's drugs, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's sex, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's pride, maybe it's ego, maybe it's go on and on. I guarantee you, as a man, you have something that's a temptation for you. And you can't be a fully functioning masculine adult until you learn to run away from some pleasure and run towards some pain. Because in that moment of temptation, when you decide to leave the pleasure and run toward the pain of denying yourself that, you know what you're doing? You're saving your soul. And you're lessening the control that that substance or that thing has over you and your spirit. If you're a guy, and and I've heard young men and men say this, well, I do pleasure and not pain. If you say that, you're not a man. I'm sorry, if you're a man that's 24, 25 years old and you're still living at mom and dad's, and you're not making your own, you're not supporting yourself, you're not taking care of yourself, it's hard to look at you and say you're a man. Now, maybe you have extenuating circumstances, but in reality, there comes a time for men to grow up and be men and not be boys anymore. But our culture wants to keep men being boys. You know why? Because the longer they're boys, the more concerned they are with pleasure and not actually doing anything productive. Dads, train your boys to go do something and be productive. And we need to train them to be productive in the church. Not just successful and productive in the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said it this way, concerning this thing, what was that thing? His thorn in the flesh. Was that suffering and pain for him? Did he pray for it to go away three times? But then ultimately, the Lord said, you know what? My grace is sufficient. Paul recognized my strength is made perfect in weakness. He says, therefore, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So guess what? He stopped praying about that. And said, I'll suffer with this, that's fine. I can handle it, I can endure it, because why? It's not my strength, it's his. And in that, he was a greater testament and testimony of what a man is in the sight of God. And if you're more concerned today about going home and playing video games than you are about going home and leading your home and your family, I'm sorry, you're not fulfilling what it is God has called you to do and be as a man. And I don't want my sons doing that. I don't want to see any of of our sons. Because here's the thing. Later on, these dopamine hits and things that feel good in the brain, they get more and more serious. And we talk about drugs. We talk about alcohol. We talk about immoral women. We talk about sexuality. Is that uncomfortable to talk about? 
It may be uncomfortable to talk about in this setting of mixed company, but dads, you better talk to your sons about it. You better prepare them for what the Bible says, that marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled. And if they will bond themselves to their wife and only their wife, there will be no greater blessing to them in their life than that physical intimacy that they can enjoy together forever. But what happens? We bind ourselves to other things like computers and screens and sometimes other women, and all of a sudden, what God has said is an honor to Him doesn't please us, isn't pleasurable. But if it's only shared with your wife, it's the most pleasurable thing you can have. And you're bonded and connected to her and only her, and that's all that matters to you is that physical relationship you have with her, and nothing else can achieve what that relationship achieves. And God designed it that way. Because why? He says we're no longer one, or no longer two, two, but we're one flesh. And that binding and bond is important. And if you live for pleasure, you will not be living for God. And that's the battle of the flesh and the spirit. Temptation's a reality. Young men, you're going to be tempted. I want to tell you that temptation is not sin. You know how we know that? The Bible says Jesus was tempted. Did Jesus sin? But here's what I thought about temptation. Whenever I became a Christian, I started looking at temptation. And I would be tempted, and I would feel like a failure. So then, guess what? Well, I might as well go through with it, because I've already sinned. It's kind of like the yellow light, and you're already in this intersection. Might as well go on through it. That's not true. If you're aware of the temptation, that's the moment you battle. That's the moment you fight. That's the moment you find the resolve as a man and say, I'm going to dig out of this because this pleasure will destroy me and I'm going to run toward the pain of denying myself whatever that is because I haven't failed yet because I'm just tempted. And Jesus was tempted as all points as we are yet without sin. And when we're tempted, men, we have to run to Jesus. We look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What did Jesus do? He says, consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself. Jesus ran from the pleasure. He left heaven. Is there any greater pleasure someone could run from than leaving heaven and coming to earth? And then not only that, but could have delivered himself. But he allowed his own creation to put him to death. He ran toward what? He ran toward pain and away from pleasure. And in that, when we're tempted... God tells us, look at Jesus as that example. And guess what? Sometimes you're going to fail. One of the greatest things we can teach our sons is how to respond when they fail. Because if they don't see that as a reality, when they fail, they're going to get crushed. And they're not going to see hope. They're not going to see forgiveness. They're not going to see restoration. All they're going to see is their inadequacy. I want to read this quote. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and miss. I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. Y'all know who said that? Yeah. 
Michael Jordan. Would any of us look at Michael Jordan in reference to basketball and his career on a basketball court and say, man, what a failure? No. We look at him and say he's the greatest of all time, no matter what people say today about LeBron James. We say he's the greatest. And he looked at his career and said, I've missed so many shots. I've failed time and time again, but I kept taking the shot. Dads, teach your children. Teach your boys. They're going to fail. Guess what? Get up and take the next shot. Get up and keep walking with God. Repent of the sin. Change your heart. Change your mind. And do better the next time. And let's not put ourselves on a pedestal and act like we've never had to do that ourselves. But be honest with our sons. Because they're depending on us to give them that sense of reality. And when they sin, they need to run to the family. This is instruction for the church to confess our faults one to another and pray one for... How often do we confess our faults? You know, when I come around and we're going to be back in June for singing school and we're going to spend a week here, you know what? People are going to talk about, how's life? Man, it's great. <laughs> Life's awesome. And Josiah's going to graduate next year. Ezra's doing great in school. Malachi's Malachi. He's happy all the time. Joy is the baby girl. She had a good school year. And what are you going to tell me? You're going to tell me all the good things about you. We're horrible about confessing our faults. We're horrible about being real and sharing the struggle. But you know, that's what strengthens relationships in the church. It was I'm willing to share what it is I struggle with with you, trusting that you're going to pray and help me, and with that, hold me accountable. Don't you think we'd be better off as God's people if we shared those more often with one another? Instead of just presenting the four-year version of ourselves three times a week. And when my boys fail, and they have failed, and they will continue to fail, they know where to run. They need to run to God's people. And I want to close with this. There are three basic P's that we have tried to instill in our sons. Number one, they need to be a provider. They need to provide for their family. God has given them that responsibility to be a leader in their home and physically provide for the needs of those within their home. And that's going to start out with them on their own, but someday I hope my sons take a life. You know what they need to feel? They need to feel the pressure to provide for them. And they need to be willing to do what's necessary as a man to take care of the responsibility that God has diligently, or I'm trying to think of the word, delivered to them, delegated, that was the word, delegated to them to take care of their home. And 1 Timothy 5 teaches us that. Secondly, I want to be a protector. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about the head of uh, Christ is God, the head of the man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, the husband. And, And my sons need to feel a pressure to protect their home and their family. That's physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And then finally, they need to be a priest. They need to be a spiritual leader in their home. And here's what I find in the church oftentimes. I think we give these lip service, we say all the right things, 
but we prepare our sons to go be leaders in this world. We go teach them how to be leaders in business. We teach them how to go out in the world and win people and influence, win friends and influence people. almost said that the other way around. We teach them to, to be civic leaders and have a good reputation and all those kind of things. And, and we forget that all of these have an application within the church. And if my sons grow up and they're leaders in their community and they're successful in business and in the world's eyes they can be looked at and said they're a leader but they're not utilizing those skills and abilities to help lead God's people I'm going to look at my life in some ways and say you know what I failed as a father doesn't mean they have to be an elder they have to be a deacon they have to be an evangelist but they need to utilize those talents and abilities and skills and leadership to apply to the kingdom of God because that's what matters most and until we truly invest in developing our sons to be leaders of God's people, we're going to struggle when it comes time to have elders in the church. We're going to struggle when it comes time to have deacons in the church. We're going to struggle when it comes time to have evangelists to send out into the field. Men of character and nobility and trust who will go do the job that they've been called to do. But if we'll instill this in our sons and focus those skills and abilities on what they can do to benefit the Lord's kingdom, when that time comes, guess what? We're going to have plenty of leaders to lead the church of God. Dads, focus on those things in training your sons. And ultimately, let's pray for our sons and our daughters. This morning, maybe you haven't been the perfect parent. Guess what? None of us are. But here's one thing I know. If you're a Christian... You have a perfect Father in Heaven. And that Father in Heaven understands your frailty. That Father in Heaven understands, guess what? The struggle against sin. That Father in Heaven understands that you have failed. And guess what He's doing? As every good Father does, He's waiting and watching and hoping that you come back to Him. And when you turn your heart and you repent of that sin and you're willing to come back to him, his arms are open and he rejoices that you have returned to your father. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't entered into that relationship with God. The Bible tells us a process by which you can be born again of the water and the spirit, baptized into Jesus Christ so that you arise to walk in the newness of life as a child of God. There's no greater joy than we would have today than for you to make that decision and to be added to the family of God through your obedience to His gospel. But no matter what the case is, understand what God has created you to be. And if you need help this morning, you need the forgiveness of sins, you need to be born again or you need to be restored, we're going to sing an invitation song. And all you have to do is take a step, have a seat up here, and come to your Father. Because He's perfect, and you're His child. And He's praying and waiting and watching for you to come home. Come to Him as we stand and sing.